kicking off a little mini-series, as it were, before our Christmas series. Um, I can't believe it. We only have three weeks of this series, not out of the fight, before we are in Christmas season. And, uh, stop it. We are not... It's not that I don't love Christmas, but it overwhelms me to think about. It really does. It's just how much is coming up in just the next few weeks. Well, we're in this series, Not Out of the Fight. In, uh, in 2018, there was a, a boxer by the name of Curtis Harper, and he was set to enter a six-round fight on the Premier Boxing Champions, uh, Championships uh, uh, boxing circuit. It was on Fox Sports 1. It was a big match. And uh, he, he had the big intro. He walked in. There was the lights and the lasers and the smoke and everything. And, you know, he comes in with his music and the lights are low and it comes up and the other boxer comes in and they're facing off and they do the introductions. Let's get ready to rumble, you know, and all that. And uh, they ring the bell and Curtis turns around, climbs out of the ropes and walks off the boxing ring and out all the way to the locker rooms into the changing rooms on live TV. And he just quit. He just walked out. And uh, everyone was kind of just flabbergasted. The other fighters standing there just like, what's, what's going on? And he, he, he just didn't fight. And many p- people believe that Harper was uh, afraid of fighting his opponent. His opponent was an Olympic boxer who had won his last five bouts by knockout. As a matter of fact, during the weigh-ins, Harper's wife went up to this other boxer and said, please don't hurt my husband. Um, so, so a lot of people speculate he was afraid of getting hurt in this boxing match, but he, he disagrees with that. He argues that he quit because he didn't think his purse was big enough. That's the winnings for being in the fight. And he says, I just was kind of boycotting and I walked out. But no matter whichever reason it was, Harper disqualified himself even before the first punch was even thrown. And uh, the match hadn't even started, and he disqualified himself. Now, if you extrapolate that out, For many Christians, before we even are contending, before we're even facing resistance, I think for a lot of us, we throw the towel in. When we feel like there's a conflict coming up, when we feel the oppression of the enemy, when we feel like there's going to be something that's coming on, uh, we see trials, adversity, and before we even begin to engage, we mentally check ourselves out. We emotionally disqualify ourselves. We spiritually declare ourselves ineligible. At very least, I'll be on the sidelines while I deal with this problem. And so um, we see these things, and I imagine Curtis Harper, what, what would just baffle me is I, I bet he spent hours and hours in the gym training. Hours and hours, months, and probably years of his life training to be a boxer, hopefully to be a champion, hopefully to win many matches. And, and yet all of this in just a few moments was over. He devoted his life, years of his life to this, and it was just done. And I think Christians, we can go to Bible studies for years and years and learn the word. And we can go to small groups and life groups and do devotionals. And we can seek formal education. We could go to seminary there and, and all these things. But what happens when you actually, boom, you get hit? We have all this training. Are we ready to actually go in and use it? Mike Tyson said that every fighter gets into the ring with a plan until they get punched in the nose. And for a lot of believers, we can, we can have all of the education and all of the background. We can talk about the Greek and all this and stuff and all these things. But what happens when it actually comes time for the rubber to meet the road in that sense? So as Christ followers, we're not exempt from troubles. We are told that we are going to face trials of many times, challenges and difficulties. Jesus promised us that. What a great promise. 
that we're going to face hard times, but, and we'll have challenging days, really challenging days. Speaking of days, I read this fact the other day. Did you know for the planet Venus, it rotates so slowly that it actually takes it longer to do a day's rotation around, like, you know, how Earth, one rotation is a day. It takes it longer to do one rotation around for a day than it does for it to go all the way around the sun. So a year will pass before a day does. That makes my mind hurt. But uh, for some of us, how many of us have ever lived a day and it feels like it's a year? This, this, will this day please end? Will this, this day just keeps going and going? And let me tell you, we face challenging days. For many Christians, we, we have these heavy days and we hit resistance. And, and then we say, oh, that's a sign I must be doing something wrong. If there's, if there's conflict, if there's controversy, if I'm dealing with uh, adversity... God must be punishing me, or I might be doing something wrong. And so what do we do? We retreat. We pull back. But, but a trial doesn't mean that you're out of the fight. So for the next three weeks, we're going to be walking through the book of 1 Peter together. And we're going to be talking about, though we may hit obstacles, though there may be trials, we are not down for the count. We are not out of the fight. And so here's what 1 Peter says. He opens with this. 1 Peter, if you have your Bibles, open with, with me to the very first chapter, first verse. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 1 through 5. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. God the Father knew knew you and chose you long ago, and His Spirit has made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed Him and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. May God give you more and more grace and peace. So, to fully grasp the power that's in this letter that Peter wrote, we're gonna, we need to understand the circumstances to which he was writing. Peter penned this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it was for a purpose. So first, let's talk about who Peter was. Peter, he also is known as Simon Peter. He started his life as a fisherman. He was one of the first disciples called by Jesus, and he was kind of in Jesus' inner core. If you were to read the Gospels, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, other than Jesus, Peter's name is mentioned more than any other. Another thing you would hear more than any other other than Jesus is Peter's voice. He talked a lot, and he said a lot of things he shouldn't have said. He put his foot in his mouth a whole lot. Now, Peter uh, also uh, said some really good things. He declared the deity of Jesus. He says, you are the Son of God before anybody else did. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, well done. And immediately after that, uh, Peter turned around and reprimanded Jesus. And he said, don't say that, Jesus, about something else. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. Talk about a quick turnaround there. And so Peter tended to just kind of, he was like a three-year-old. There's no filter between here and here. You know, it just just comes out. Um, (laughs) One of my children, I won't say which one, once looked at someone and said, you're huge. Um, So (laughs) Peter also denied even knowing Jesus. When Jesus was arrested and on trial, a little girl walked up to Peter, this huge fisherman, and said, don't you know Jesus? And he says, I don't even know the man. He didn't even say Jesus' name. He said, I don't even know the guy. And he denied knowing Jesus, but of course he was reinstated by Jesus after the resurrection. And, uh, and, and Jesus told him, on this rock, on this Petros, I'm going to build my church. And then the, 
day of Pentecost came and Peter was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and he went out and he preached the gospel with boldness to this throng of people and thousands came to salvation in Christ because of Peter's boldness. And so uh, he became a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. He was like uh, this this figure of leadership of the church, mainly in Jerusalem. But he writes this letter and he didn't write it uh, with with like opening with like, well, actually, I want to I want to read a minute and then I'll tell you a little bit more. Let's go down to verse three and then I'll, I'll we'll open up a little more about what's going on here. Verse three, he says this all praise to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So he writes this word of encouragement. We'll double back on this a little bit, but where is he writing it from? He's not writing it from Jerusalem. Of course, this is where he was based, but at this point, he's not in Jerusalem anymore. And he's not in an Airbnb on the lake shore or on the Sea of Galilee. He is, as we see in just a minute, in Rome. In First uh, Peter chapter 5, at the end of this book, he says this, Your sister church here in Babylon sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Now, when they used the term Babylon, the Jewish people, that was a reference to a, an oppressive or occupying nation. Remember that they were taken into captivity in Babylon? And so they viewed Rome as the new Babylon, and so this was kind of just a slang word they would use for Rome. And so he is in Rome writing this letter, and it's meant to be distributed among several churches. Um, it's, it's different than Paul's epistles. Paul would write an epistle to a, a church in a particular area. He'd see things going on in Corinth and be like, oh, they are messed up. I got to deal with this. And he'd write a letter. You guys pull it together. Come on. And he'd send that to Corinth. And then the people in Corinth would be like, oh, we're really messing up. Other people should see this too. And they'd pass it around. But with Peter, he wrote this to a group of churches. We just read that, right? The provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he sent this out to a group of churches in modern day Turkey. It was called, uh, it was, it, it was called Asia Minor at the time, but it's modern day Turkey. And so the church came out of Jerusalem and was primarily birthed in this area of Turkey. If you look at most of the churches that the letters of Paul and things are written to, it's in Turkey, which is fascinating but also devastating when you realize that the church essentially doesn't exist there anymore today. Statistically, right now in Turkey, it is 0.2% of the population that would call themselves Christians. 02 it's a fractional group. There's hardly any churches. And uh, we support a family from here in Oregon that has gone to Turkey and is planting the church there right now. They've been there for the last eight years or so. And uh, they're actually stateside right now, and we're going to have them first of the year with us. We're planning on getting them here for one of our midweek equips to come and share about what God is doing. But they're planting the church in some really unique ways because uh, bringing the gospel like this is not allowed. So they're going in um, with, with different business opportunities, but they're using it as ways to plant the church. And I'm going to talk about what this looks like for them right now, or for them in this context, but how it's not too different than what Peter was writing to to the people there. So, um, so what's going on? So what's the 
context in which Peter is writing this to. He says, um, I'm, I'm writing to encourage you. Why? Because they're going through really difficult times. To follow Jesus, for many of the people in these areas, meant that you would be leaving your family behind. You would be leaving your livelihood, your job behind, your community group. Possibly even your life would be in jeopardy to follow Jesus. And this is not much different than it is in Turkey right now to follow Jesus. It is 90% Sunni Muslim in Turkey. And so to follow Jesus, to say I'm going to be a Christian, would mean excommunication from your family, no longer having contact. It means, it means loss of your, your social connections, your business, all these different things. People won't do business with you. So to say I'm going to follow Jesus is, is a tremendously uh, courageous and kind of wild thing to do. But something that this family that we support has told us is that every person has made that decision is full of joy like you wouldn't even believe and understand. There's a joy that pervades their soul. And this is what Peter's going to be talking about. But it's costly to follow Jesus. It's costly. And so, um, so, so this, all of this stuff that's happening now is happening then. Um, people viewed Christians, because it was a, a really new thing, as some different things. For one, they kind of viewed them as atheists, which I thought was pretty wild. But they actually viewed Christians as, as atheists because they didn't believe in many, many gods. They believed in one god. And, and so they were like, well, then you basically are, are, you know, don't believe in any gods if you believe in one god. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. On top of that, they also kind of saw them as cannibals. Um, When they heard that they share in communion, and it's for us, we understand it's the symbolic breaking of uh, of bread where it's Jesus' body and blood that was poured out for us, and we remember. For them, they're going, wait, you're eating and drinking the blood of of your your deity? You're you're bizarre. And so they were outcasts. And so um, Peter was writing this to these group of people that were really outcasts in society. And he wrote his letter between the years, this is important to hear, between the years 60 and 64 AD. 60 and 64 AD, he's in Rome writing this. And and he saw the suffering that was happening, but I think he also saw the suffering that was yet to come. Because I think Peter had his finger on the pulse of the cultural undertones that were happening and shifting in Rome. Because there was this new movement of Christianity that was blossoming and growing about this crucified rabbi from Israel. But then in the year 64, something happened. You see, there was a, uh, an emperor in Rome by the name of Nero. And Nero was in power and he was kind of cuckoo, a little crazy. And uh, a fire broke out in Rome. And it burned through Rome for six days straight. Just burned all the way, uh, just across the city. Ironically, two of the places it missed were Nero's house and his partner's house. Happened to miss that. And so the ire of the Roman people was starting to grow towards Nero. They were starting to get angry at Nero. And like any good politician, he decided, you know what we need to do is shift that, uh, the optics a little bit towards someone else. And so what he did was he blamed the Christians. You see, there's this, there's this new movement of, of, uh, uh, of, of uh, J- this Jewish splinter group that's coming out. This teacher that was crucified some 35 years ago uh, fits perfectly. And so he casts the blame on the Christians and this persecution between the years 64 and 67 broke out. It was some of the bloodiest years in the Christian, in Christian martyrdom. It includes the death of Peter. Um, there was a, a uh, a Roman historian by the name of Tacitus, not a Christian, not a follower of the way. By the way, he kind of didn't like Christians at all. But he wrote this when he wrote about the persecution that broke out um, uh, upon the Christians. He wrote this. In their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport. For they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried. Worried is an old-timey word for mauled. 
mauled to death by dogs, or nailed to crosses, or set fire to. And when the day waned, meaning night came, they were burned to serve for the evening lights. Nero offered his own garden players for the spectacle. And so Nero would throw garden parties and he would tar Christians and then set them upright in his garden and set them alight as human torches to light his parties. And so during this time, as I mentioned, Peter himself was crucified. He was crucified, uh, according to our church history, upside down uh, because he didn't feel that he had, he, he deserved to be crucified the same way as Jesus. So he was crucified upside down. And so in light of what the church was facing and what uh, I think Peter saw the writing on the wall of where culture was going, he wrote to the church about what was about to happen. In 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, he says this, So, bad things are coming. This is going to be terrible. Really, really bad. No, he says this, So be truly glad. There is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. So against all seeming reasonable responses, Peter calls the church to be glad. In the face of this, if you were about to watch a close family member or a dear friend walk through some tremendously dark time, you saw it coming, what advice would you give them? Wouldn't you say like, hey, I just need to tell you, hold on for dear life. Things are going to get bad or, or batten down the hatches. Secure your finances. Uh, get legal help. Get out of Dodge. Something like that. Would you, would you tell them, hey, good news. Good, joyful things are coming. It's going to be bad. Just wanted to let you know. But that's what he says. He says there's trials on the horizon, and yet he expects the church to have constant joy in the trials. How can we expect to have joy in trials? I'm very, very quickly going to touch on these three because then we've got baptisms to get to. But here's what we read just now, and I'm going to touch back on them. Three things that we see that Peter talks about. Reasons we can have joy in trials in the fight. First of all, we can have joy in trials because it confirms that our faith is genuine. He says there's wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It helps us distinguish genuine faith from superficial faith. It's one thing to stand firm in our convictions when things are going well, right? And everyone's cheering us on. But what happens when the fires of adversity are around us? Then we find out what we really have substance in. What we really put our feet on. You've heard of talking the talk and then actually walking the walk, right? So when we deal with trials, it actually shows what I believe is really what I believe. If we pass through the trial and we're standing on faith, we know that faith is secure. And it proves it. It proves that faith to be real and genuine. Second is this. We can have joy in trials because of what the process produces. 1 Peter 1.7, it's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. The crucible of purification. I was reading a devotional. There's a dentist uh, back east who, on his business webpage, writes a devotional. And he was writing in it about how when he was going through dental school, he, uh, they would uh, take 
uh, gold and actually make the, the caps and the crowns and the inlays right there. And so he says we put the gold in the crucible and heat it up to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's this molten gold, and then the crucible spins really fast. And as it spins, it ejects all of the impurities come out of the gold, and they're flying out. And as they come out, they catch fire. And he says it looks like uh, a tiny little, uh, 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 st- like uh, what shooting stars entering our atmosphere. It's like little sparks coming out. But that's the impurities coming out of the gold. And what you're left with is the 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 real authentic gold, what, what actually is pure. Um, but what comes out is called the dross. And you can read about this several times in the Bible. It talks about the dross. T- today they actually call it the scum. Getting rid of the scum that comes off of it. Proverbs 25 verse 4. The, 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 the proverb says, Take away the dross from the silver and the smith has material for a vessel. When the dross is removed from the silver, the silversmith has something they can work with. The process of refining actually makes a vessel with which the creator can use. Do you want to be used by your creator? Do you want to be useful to your, to, to, to the, to the artist, to the one who wants to make something beautiful? Well, you have to actually go through a process of purification. But that's uncomfortable because often the dross or the scum becomes part of us. And when it's burned away, that hurts. When that's burned away, that's not fun. Psychologist uh, Jordan Peterson said people don't like having their dead wood burnt off because they are mostly dead wood. (laughs) But as we go through the process of purification, what remains is something that is ultimately more reflective of Jesus. And the more we go through that process, we engage with the process, it changes our perspective. It goes from, God, why is this happening to me? How many of us have ever asked that? How many of us asked that this week, right? Why is this happening to me? I said that at a stoplight the other day. But it changes that narrative to, God, what are you trying to develop in me? That changes everything. It shifts the whole perspective. As I go through this, God, what are you developing in me? What are you purifying in me? What are you refining within me? Pastor Kerry Wesley said that the spiritual progress of a believer then is best measured in times of trouble. When we go through the crucible... We can see, how am I navigating this situation different than I would have navigated it last year? And if it wouldn't be much different last year, then we need to be a lot more refined, don't we? Or maybe last month or last Thursday. What's God been doing? And his third is this, we can have joy because we know the conclusion. Verse 7, when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Christ Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You see, the reward at the end is so worth whatever we may walk through today. And that's easy to say right now. But when you're in the the pit, when you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, it's not easy to keep your mind on, oh, this is going to be worth it. This is going to be so worth it. And that's why Peter's encouraging them and reminding them. Can I tell you, we need to encourage and remind each other. It's worth it. The other side is worth it. Eternity is worth it. This is what it's all about. That there is, uh, there is an, an eternity that is going to be a thousand times more real and, and, and beautiful than the present trial that we're walking through. First Peter verse one, or chapter 1 verse 3 says, Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay. So we have joy because it confirms that our faith is genuine. We have joy because of the process, it produ- uh, the process of what it produces. And we have joy because we have the guarantee of a greater eternal promise. 
So no matter what you pass through, let me tell you, get off the mat. If you are down, the 10 count has not finished yet. It's time to get up. You're still in the fight. We aren't just sitting back taking what the enemy throws at us. It's time to engage. Here's what Peter says in in verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, so prepare your minds for action. In the Greek, it says, so gird up the loins of your mind. That's a weird sounding phrase, girding up the loins of your mind. But here's what it means. Back then, they didn't wear these really cool blue jeans. Levi's didn't exist then. They had tunics. And running in a tunic and things like that is kind of hard. You're limited in your emotions. So what they'd do is they'd gather them up. And then they'd gather it together, and they'd wrap it around their loins and tuck it in to their belt. And now, you've got all the range of motion you need to fight, to run, to engage. And so, when he says, gird up the loins of your mind, he's saying, prepare your mind for action. Prepare your mind to actually engage. Don't just, don't just let the enemy shoot his arrows at us and we're just trying to hold on. We are proactive and we are prepared. So for you, you may say, I'm down. Let me tell you, a broken relationship is not the end for you. A health challenge you might be facing does not mean it's your last chapter. Former failures are not your destiny. Lay claim to the eternal hope. The present suffering and the struggle that we are walking through now doesn't even measure to what we will gain in that beautiful exchange for eternity. And so this morning, we're going to be celebrating with those who are getting baptized because they have said, I'm going to exchange for something better. I'm going to exchange for something better. What we're doing here is a symbolic gesture of deciding to follow Jesus, dying to our old self and coming to new life in Him. In First Peter chapter 3, he talks about what baptism is. He says, and that water is a picture of baptism which now saves you, not by removing dirt from your body. We hope that everybody getting baptized is already bathed at some point. That's... <laughs> but as a response to God from a clean conscience, it's effective because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not effective because this is magic water. It's not effective because of the actual gesture that we're doing. It's effective because of what Jesus did on the cross and receiving that. And so today, it's a public declaration of, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. I want the world to know that He is my Savior and He is my King. And so we are going to celebrate that together this morning. So I want to... Direct your eyes to the screens. We're going to watch these testimonies and then we're going to get to it and dunk some people, all right? Thank you. 
All right. Praise God. I love doing these videos because your stories matter. That's why we do the videos. Your story matters and what God's done. Let's baptize these folks and celebrate what God has done. Emily, on your confession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray with Kalia right now. Lord, I pray that you would put your hand of power upon her life, Lord, that she would serve you every day of her life, that this moment of dedication would be foremost to say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord in every aspect of my life, and that this would be a point of no turning back, a marker that she says, this is the day that I said, Jesus, you are Lord of everything. Kalia, on your confession of Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Jenny. Right up against the edge. Yes. Lord, right now we pray with Jenny. We thank you, Lord, for the markers in her life that she's looked back and seen your faithfulness. And right now, as she makes this dedication of faith, saying, I have decided to follow Jesus, that I'm dying to my old self and taking on the new life in Christ, I pray that you would give her power from the Holy Spirit that there would be a, just an increase, an acceleration into the things of God from this day forward, that you would fill her with your Holy Spirit. Lord, that there would be an overflowing and overpower, overpowering uh, just presence of God in her life from this point forward. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Go ahead and plug your nose and then grab your wrist with this one. Right. Upon your confession of faith in Jesus, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
Jesus, I just praise you and I thank you for Summer and I thank you for the walk that you have brought her through. Father God, this woman is a woman of worship and we're going to watch worship in this woman open up like a flower, Father God. We thank you, Jesus, for this. Thank you, God. Hallelujah. Yes, God. Yes, God. Summer, by your profession of faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I baptize you today in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One at a time, guys. One at a time. Jesus, right now, we pray over this man of God. We thank you, God, that you have called him to a point of ministry, a place of leadership. But right now, I pray for an overflowing of the Holy Spirit in his life. I pray that you would fill him with your power and your presence and your anointing. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fill him with, with, a, with an authority, Lord, and a, and a calling that is even beyond what he could ask or imagine, Lord. I pray that you would draw him to new things, Lord, that Jordan would lead his family uh, with godliness, and from this point forward, he would look back as a marker in his life, saying, this is the day that I dedicated myself before my family and before God and before my church, that I'm going to follow Jesus every step of the way, every day of my life. In your name we pray, amen. Go ahead and plug your nose and grab your wrist with the other hand. She, she's not going to let you go down. She's... Jordan, on your confession of faith as Jesus is your Lord and Savior, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Yes! It's okay, you're getting into. Let's pray for Gianna right now, church. Lord, right now, we thank you for this life that Gianna has brought and blessed our church with and the the story that she's had that you've brought her to this point. Lord, we pray that you would anoint her steps as she moves forward in her walk with you as you have become more real to her in these last months than you have ever been. Lord, I pray that you would anoint her from her head to her feet, that she would feel the power of God uh, through her life in every aspect, in her relationships, in her friendships, in her comings and goings, Lord, that you would bring your blessing before her, Lord, and that she would have opportunities to share the love of Christ, that it would exude just through her life in ways that she couldn't even express. I pray that the joy of the Lord and confidence would flow through her, that she would feel the empowerment uh, that comes through the Holy Spirit, that you would fill her, Lord, and we thank you for it, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, go ahead and plug your nose with one hand and grab your wrist. Gianna, on your confession of Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I now baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Praise God. What a wonderful day.
What a wonderful day. I feel like when the coaches get the Gatorade thing dumped on them, and that, this is the kind of celebration we're talking about. That's victory in Jesus' name right there. New Life, have a blessed, blessed day. We will see you next Sunday. Go with God today. God bless you.